Resonant Zones is a podcast about echoes and pulsations between people, ideas, and artifacts, hosted by Adam Wetterhunt. For more information about Adam's work, teaching, and philosophy, visit Adam's blog, asatkora.com, spelled A-S-A-T-K-H-O-R-A.com. Welcome to Resonant Zones, a podcast about alchemical, philosophical, and mindfulness practice. Resonant Zones is a podcast about intensity. A zone is an interstitial space opening between things, an in-between, a territory, perhaps what the Tibetans call a bardo. Objects, entities, artworks, and people all emit zones. Resonance is the interplay, the energy between things. This podcast is a dialogue about echoes and intersections of thoughts and thinkers, makers and objects, practitioners and practices. I am seeking strange confluences at the borders of ideas and practices. My name is Adam Wetterhan. My hope is that you'll get to know me from the content and context of these conversations. But I'm a philosopher, a yogi, a meditator, someone who teaches practices inside the walls of American prisons, at least for the last seven and a half years, although that's all been stalled by the COVID-19 pandemic. This podcast will always have three sections. First, an introduction to the person or concepts discussed. The actual conversation or exposition will be the bulk of your listening experience. And I will include at the end of each episode a brief guided or suggested practice in order for you to work with the content discussed and make it real for you. These practices will at times be brief, involving something like thought experiments or imaginative exercises or brief journaling or other experiences. However, often the practices will involve higher levels of concentration, insight, and take the form of either guided meditations or other forms of philosophical exercise. Now you may be thinking, that sounds pretty high demand, and perhaps it is, but my hope is that as you continue to listen and engage with the ideas in this podcast, you'll find that it is absolutely worth it and much more practical to engage with concepts in the way that I'm suggesting. You may be wondering why the emphasis on practice in the context of a podcast listening experience. This podcast will often involve abstract, metaphysical, or difficult-to-grasp ideas as part of the conversation and exposition. It is my belief that in order to truly understand, to be inside of and able to use those concepts, we must practice them. By no means do you have to have a pre-existing practice to get involved with the ideas shared within this podcast, or to begin to utilize the guided and suggested practices at the end of each episode. In fact, I hope that for some of you, this is a first foray into new intensities and horizons of thought, engaging with ideas in a new, more critical, but also more engaged and lived fashion. Today's episode is about philosophy and ecology after the end of the world, based on the book Hyperobjects by Timothy Morton. I began reading this book in late 2019, and it has been strange to finish reading its pages as the global outbreak of the COVID-19 virus has only intensified, not only in the sense of the infection rate, but also in the growing sense 
that our world is either paused or stalled out in some way that we can barely begin to conceptualize right now as I begin to speak on March 26th, 2020. Morton's text coins the term hyperobjects to refer to things that are massively distributed in time and space relative to humans. And I'll read now from the first page of Morton's text. A hyperobject could be a black hole. A hyperobject could be the Lago Agrio oil field in Ecuador or the Florida Everglades. A hyperobject could be the biosphere or the solar system. A hyperobject could be the sum total of all the nuclear materials on Earth, or just the plutonium, or the uranium. A hyperobject could be the very long-lasting product of direct human manufacture, such as styrofoam or plastic bags, or the sum of all the whirring machinery of capitalism. Hyperobjects, then, are hyper in relation to some other entity whether they are directly manufactured by humans or not. Morton goes on to list some of the attributes of hyperobjects. Hyperobjects have numerous properties in common. They are viscous, which means that they stick to beings that are involved with them. They are non-local, in other words, any local manifestation of a hyperobject is not directly the hyperobject. They involve profoundly different temporalities than the human scale we are used to. In particular, some very large hyperobjects, such as planets, generate space time vortices due to general relativity. Hyperobjects occupy a high-dimensional phase space that results in their being invisible to humans for stretches of time. And they exhibit their effects interobjectively. That is, they can be detected in a space that consists of interrelationships between aesthetic properties of objects. The hyperobject is not a function of our knowledge. It's hyper relative to worms, lemons, and ultraviolet rays, as well as to humans. Morton goes on to list various examples of other hyperobjects, including the guitars in My Bloody Valentine songs, the aspects of certain postmodern works of art, or 19th century romantic poetry, but for Morton, the hyperobject we must consider, and the one that his book always turns around, is the event that we sometimes call global warming. Or more recently, it has been referred to as climate change. Morton believes that considering the existence and life of hyperobjects involves an ethical dimension in which we have to consider how our lives relate to these large, non-local, undulating, and hyper-objects. As such, when he hears people refer to global warming as climate change, he sees that as an erasure of the hyper-object itself, which is the warming of the planet. Such that the term climate change itself is an act of erasure or denial of the existence of a hyperobject we are all living with and within day in and day out. And so, without further ado, I'd like to invite you into my conversation with Kevin Van Scooter. Kevin is a longtime friend, a philosopher, best man at my wedding, a stay at home dad, salesman, poet, video artist. Sana enthusiast, former vocalist in the black metal band Kinsmen of the Slain. You can find a lot of Kevin's video work and some of our previous collaborations on Kevin's Vimeo account. I'll place a link in the show notes. Thanks for joining us today on Resonant Zones.
Tim Morton's Hyper Objects, which we both have recently read and discussed in your uh, cedar sauna in your backyard a few times recently. <laughs> I was turned on to this book by um, it coming up both in the Weird Studies podcast with J.F. Martell and Phil Ford, but also in this other text I was reading, Seeing Through the World, which is about uh, Jean Gebser or Jean Gebser and integral consciousness, which gives a reading list in the back that includes Morton's book. So once it was like, okay, two referrals, I better dive in. Had you, you come recommend it to me? Is that how that worked? Because I don't, I don't remember at this point. I know that it came up, um, but you may have stumbled upon it on your own. I wanted to see if that's the case. I, it, this is a little bit embarrassing, uh -huh. but I believe it was one of the recommended books on Amazon for me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the algorithms know us, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it, well, it's so funny because, you know, one of the ideas that comes up is that, that some of these entities, you can really only understand through these computational models. And it, it turns out maybe there's always been an appetite for this kind of literature, but we needed the algorithms to suggest it to mm. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But not only did the hyper objects yeah. see, but the actual wow. text. <laughs> yeah. That's a good point that some of these books would not even exist or would be like like punk pamphlets in another era, but like because of Amazon algorithms, like we're all reading this shit. I mean that's true. My Amazon algorithm is quite badass, I think, and uh also to blame uh for not an insignificant amount of purchases uh that have piled up next to my bed and my bookshelves. I think though, I, I was like wanting to read this to get in touch with the concepts that Morton, an ecologist and philosopher, um, among other things, I don't know if he considers himself an art critic, but he's definitely doing that also. I wanted to get into it for the concepts, but I wasn't that drawn to it until you started it and told me about that passage about the guitars in My Bloody Valentine songs. And, and see, this just reminds me so much of, um, you know, there have been these moments in, uh, you know, at one point I was very interested in doom metal, right? Huge low end, um, and you know, in, in the show, and there is there is something that is precognitive of the reception of that music, mm. and I, I've, I've never really found aesthetic theory that it, for me is able to capture that sufficiently until, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. until um, Morton. Doesn't he say that the music, it tunes to me? Or does he say I tune to the music? Do you, do you want me to read it here? Yeah. Kant argues the aesthetic experience is attunement. Uh, his word for is stimung. Mm -hmm. But I do not attune to my bloody valentine. Rather, my bloody valentine tunes to me pursuing my in, my innards, searching out the resonant frequencies of my stomach, my intestines, the pockets of gristle in my face, mm. yet always with those beautiful chords, the ones that lash you to the mast. Mm. Now, I, I don't know what the mast is doing there, but um, it certainly sounds good when you read it. <laughs> or oh, feels yeah. good when you read it. <laughs> well, and, and with all of his work, there's always that that ecological tone, right? So that that... I'm getting this like ship lost at sea vibe. I'm gonna keep yeah. reading that same section. Uh, the walls of feedback that the Velvet Underground inaugurated in heroin are sound as hyper object, a sound from which I can't escape, a viscous sonic latex. It hurts me. A strange masochistic dimension of aesthetic experience opens up underneath the one in which the art object, quote unquote, and I appear to be held in a perfect Kantian mind meld. Um, and as I'm as I'm reading this, in the second phase of the book, the second um, section, he outlines a couple concepts um, that I think explain this experience a little bit more deeply. Um, the first of which is the concept of zones, um, which he opens up. Uh, I'll try to find page where he goes into zones but the idea is that not just art objects but any object here we go 145 in the um 
Hippocrates chapter. Uh, the existence of zones emitted by objects is the physical reason for Kantian beauty. Kantian beauty is a non-conceptual, object-like entity that seems to float between me and the object. Kant reads it as a reflection of my a priori synthetic judgment. But in order for this aesthetic experience to arise, there must be a zone. The zone vibrates from an object and burns through my conceptual overlay, haunting me with its strange strangeness. The zone turns my beliefs and reifications to ash. In the case of hyperobjects, this happens even if I am thick-headedly not well-attuned to zones. Hyperobjects are simply too vast to be ignored. Zones are real, but they are not objectively there. And I think in, in reading this passage, a question I'd like to put onto your plate is that in your work as an artist over the years, has the concept of zone um, of the space between the work and the viewer um, played a role? And if so, how? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and I guess I should say, you know, I've made a, a variety of work out there, um, but mostly video work. And, and I would say probably something like uh, the way he describes um, Velvet Underground, right, where it kind of can be kind of punishing for the viewer, right? Um, uh, you know, I, I do think that video as a whole benefits um, if you if you imagine that it creates um, a, you know a zone or a, a realm of possibility that the viewer didn't interpret or didn't guess would be there. Now I don't think this happens often in Hollywood, right? And in the kind of films that you see, um, you know the I don't know uh, Tom Cruise movies, something like this. But I think that in the more avant-garde work, there's been a tradition since the 60s to see um, the, you know, the, the uh, really you're not watching video, you're watching uh, punctuated light. Um, and to bring the viewer back to the immediacy of their senses, uh, if that makes any sense. So if you, if you take that as the project of video, then... Um, you know, there's a whole realm of, of possibility uh, it, since you're you're kind of manipulating one of these these kind of raw senses. Um, the, there's a different passage that I actually had that's kind of related. It's actually a couple of pages er, uh, earlier in 142, where um, uh, a zone is not entirely a matter of free will. Objects are far more threatening. Uh, excuse me, objects are far more threateningly autonomous and sensually autonomous than the Kantian, Kantian version of autonomy. Objects are, in a sense, like the temporary autonomous zone celebrated by Hakim Bey. Mm. The birth of a fresh object is a political interruption, a revolution that changes all the other objects, no matter how slightly. A zone is not studiously decided by a committee before it goes into action. Irreducibly, it is already happening. And, and what I what I take for that is that you know once you have this zone in which the work can happen, and once the viewer has kind of signaled that they're they're uh, interested in exploring that zone, remaining in that zone, um, you can. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know how strongly I want to say this, but you you know there's there's a, a sense in which there's the negation of free will. You can you can directly manipulate their reality, and and I think that my bloody Valentine does. You know, I think that's a great example of somebody that mm -hmm. it, it doesn't uh, call on your preconceived notions. They are, uh, you know, I, I think reordering your reality, uh, mm -hmm. as it were, um, mm -hmm. in that zone. And I, but I do think there's a moment of commitment. You have to decide as a viewer to be possessed. You know, mm -hmm. um, and so it's you know mm -hmm. the real work of the video artist is is in finding a pursuit that is, is worthy of, of being seduced for, mm -hmm. right? Like for mm -hmm. the viewer to, to see something and say, ah, I will temporarily give myself over to that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, and we so like my, it. Uh, and we, <laughs> yeah, no, you know, we like, it, yeah. like uh, I think uh, Genesis Briar Peorage from Throbbing Gristle just passed away this week. And, uh, you know, I, w- I'm not deeply familiar with her work, but I have listened to Throbbing Gristle and Psychic TV, two of her main musical outputs. And I think the move that she's often making is that there is an S&M dimension to aesthetic experience. In other words, when we give ourselves over to an artwork, even if it's punishing, right? You know, even if it's Game of Thrones and every episode we watch people we like get tortured and eventually killed off or whatever that is, or a uh, uh, doom metal, right? Or in uh, Genesis's case, like noise music. You know, we give ourselves over to you know, uh, giving up free will and entering this zone where we're vulnerable and we like it, right? We want to do it again. Do you, do you think, because obviously you have a, a background of, as a musician, right? Um, and as a DJ and, and kind of in, in the sonic arts, we'll say. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that there's some version of this in your, your work? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think especially... Um, in the ambient drone and and noise records, but also some of the uh, industrial music that I've worked on, right? It's like you want there to be ugliness in music. Um, I remember a friend uh, a few years ago was giving a critique of things like uh, Sigaros, who I actually happen to like quite a bit, uh, both this friend and the music. But uh, he was making the point that... uh, you know, he doesn't need he doesn't feel the need to put on songs that make him feel like he's going to heaven. Right. Was the critique, uh, which I found was pretty good uh, critique for a lot of cigarettes music. But, uh, you know, that we want salt in our experience. Right. I think of James Hillman, the psychologist, psychoanalyst, uh, who wrote a great book um, called Alchemical Psychology where he suggests that unpleasant experiences just from slight discomfort all the way to full-blown trauma are salty. And uh, when we say of older people or veterans, for example, that they are the salt of the earth, or when we say we're feeling salty or when we taste uh, our sweat and find it to be salty, right? Uh, We're sort of engaging with this like bitterness that is in reality itself. And so any kind of aesthetic work that's completely devoid of bitterness, uh, I just don't even know if, if you can fully escape it. And there are certain, certain art forms that play up the salt. A bit of a, bit of a jump, but you know, I've been reading Byung Chal Han, mm-hmm. right? And uh, in particular, one of his books, The Agony of Arrows, he, he, and I think this actually permeates a lot of his work is he has this, this, uh, uh, critique of modern society that it is uh, overly positive that mm-hmm. because of these these algorithms you know um, you know you can have a kind of a constant feed of things that reaffirm your view mm-hmm. and um, it to an extent you can have this formulation of like a narcissistic society because there is mm-hmm. no other that they have to kind of uh, take in there's no there's no negativity and and also I think po- positivity for him and what I'm just I'm just now starting to read him but positivity also involves productivity right it's like output yeah so, yeah 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 he has this whole thing about the achievement subject and how it's yeah. like exponentially more uh, exploitable <laughs> than the mm-hmm. than the uh, uh, disciplinarian subject I think is the other, you know, kind of former mode of production. But, um, but, uh, well, I just think about, you know, creating these, uh, coming back to the Hawking Bay, these temporary autonomous zones wherein you have the possibility of a genuine other that includes a certain kind of salt or negativity. And that, um, you know, it, in, in the popular media, probably because everything is meant to be immediately consumable, maximizing the number of potential consumers, there's so much positive. To, it's fascinating. There's still a segment of our, of our society where we're seeking out systematically these, right? Like, because you don't, you don't meet somebody who's very into, 
I don't know, name your name your thing here, you know, Von Trier or, <laughs> or doom metal mm-hmm. or industrial music. Like if they're into it, mm-hmm. like they're into it, right. you know? Yeah. And yeah. when you connect with somebody else who's into it, mm-hmm. you know, you, you know, <laughs> it, well, I mean, it's not universally true, but you mostly know there's like a shared saltiness there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? that's true. Yeah. And, and so this zone that opens up between artworks and their, uh, the, the people encountering them is a place where salt, among many other ingredients, may come into play. And I, I want to circle back to your whole thing of sort of giving over free will. Maybe it's the free will of the positive achievement subject that's being sacrificed and turning over into a freedom for something else, a freedom for experiencing otherness or freedom for experiencing salt or for visceral catharsis or, uh, you know, whatever the aesthetic experience might be, uh, feeling hopeful or feeling disgusted or whatever, you know, range there is there. But I think that what, you know, Morton's concept of the hyper object, which itself is kind of viscous and a little bit slippery, you know, he's, he's really driving at the issue of global warming which is a term that he prefers to climate change because global warming is the actual event uh, or the actual object that's taking place in climate change. He says might as well be an erasure or a denial just in the term itself, which is a really badass argument. I've since switched back to calling it global warming rather than climate change. Um, but he, you know, one, one of the questions that the book is asking without asking directly is why is it so okay objects emit zones humans aren't the only thing emitting a zone we we emit a zone but we encounter lots of zones right all the all the time but why is it that the zone of hyper objects is something that we are not willing to see ourselves within right he uses this metaphor of waking up and discovering you're inside an object, right? Why are we denying it? Or what is the the mechanism by which we turn away from hyper objects? Well, I th- I'll, I'll differ from you a little bit here. Yeah. I think that he does answer it. I think that's why the, the book is, the subtitle is Philosophy and Ecology After the End of the World. Mm-hmm. I think that is exactly the end of the world. I think there is, I think, Rightly, people who are resisting global warming are, are, have intuited already that it will be a Copernican-like revolution mm. to, see, to, to acknowledge the existence of these hyperobjects. They will fundamentally shift uh, our sense of temporality. Now, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it, but, but in, in, you know, as much, you know, in the Copernican revolution, right, you have this idea that the sun would go around the earth once, once a day, right? And, and hyperobjects and, and the acknowledgement of a, a global warming hyperobject you have, you know, these fundamental non-human entities pressing up against this, you know, non-human time where, you know, he, in the second section, he goes through the example of something that's a pro, you know, taking action now that will impact people because, you know, the you know, styrofoam takes 500 years to break down, right? For instance, so not going out and getting the styrofoam to, you know, to, you know, to go from the local Chinese restaurant or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think, I think it will... Uh, it, it will necessarily involve the kind of reformatting of all of our decisions, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I, I mean, I think there's something uh, deeply human about that, you know, mm-hmm. that, that, you know, that sense of, of, you know, kind of not, I, you know, I, I don't know exactly what else to say beyond that. Right. Except mm-hmm. that yeah, a lot of people I know don't want it are resistant to change. <laughs> sure. And at the, at the time of the Copernican revolution, right. The church was burning people at the stake who um, professed belief in this new way of seeing the world. Right. Oh so, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, pick your example there. Right. Right. Um, so, you many. know, and that is true. He does he does make that argument pretty compellingly that we're not looking at it because it would totally change how we relate to each other. And and he's also the guy who and I only know this from his book titles, but he's the one who wants to think ecology without nature. And I think that that just that title in and of itself 
sort of ruptures what most of us think of when we think of the ecological project. Like, oh, there are places like Yosemite or just the the 10 trees on my street that are capital in nature. And I don't want that shit to be harmed. Um, or maybe, or maybe there's kind of like a theological projection where, um, I mean, he goes after the Gaia hypothesis, which I don't know that much about, but I think sort of is a somewhat animist project from what I can tell of seeing, you know, kind of this mother earth Gaia, right. Um, as an, as a all encompassing organism, which is kind of similar to his concept of hyper object, but he wants to distance himself from that because these folks are projecting this kind of anima um, that needs to be preserved by ecological action. And I think what he wants is not where we preserve or conserve anything at all. It's where like, we're not trying, it's not a project of conservation or preservation. It's a project of, uh, completely relating to the world in a new way, which is much harder to think of and much harder to be. Yeah. You know, I, uh, there's a part of me that really wants him to kind of, um, allow, like, I, I almost think with how humans work, like if you allowed this idea that the hyper object had itself, uh, kind of a, I don't want to say will, mm-hmm. but if it had like, if he really thought that the objects out there constituted something like, a, you know, like a suchness, right? So they had their own proposition, something like an animist might, right? Mm-hmm. I actually think that I would, I, I, I mean, you'd be opening up hyper objects to becoming something like a religious cult. <laughs> probably <laughs> but i'm, yeah. I'm kind of in for that at this point. i am too yeah yeah i think i'm there and you know it's interesting because at the same time that he's going after the gaia hypothesis and sort of uh he, he aligns himself in order to make this critique with heidegger right which we all know myself uh maybe especially know is a very interesting bedfellow you know it, so he says that he used to not like heidegger's work Um, But not only does he imbibe what Graham Harmon and most kind of more academic Heideggerians uh, consume, which is being and time and the works that supplement that, but Morton goes directly to Heidegger's weirdest and most arcane set of texts that were written while he was basically like trying to wait out like Hitler in the Black Forest. Okay. And this text is called Contributions to Philosophy of the Event. Heidegger refused to have it published during his lifetime. And in it, he he completely refutes uh, any kind of systematic thinking. But one of the themes that keeps turning up is that Heidegger is basically like, we have no gods anymore, right? Like Heidegger really believes Nietzsche, like, the, the last, the most recent God was the Christian God and that God is dead. Uh, so Heidegger like thinks that is fully true. Um, but he, he keeps saying that what we have to do is attune ourselves to the arrival of the last God. And he keeps like almost like a mantra all throughout that text. He keeps saying basically, I mean, he's even using weird prophetic language like hearken. How can we hearken to the footsteps of the not yet arriving last God, right? And that's what Heidegger's going, going on about in the late 30s. And Morton decides to end his book on that note of all notes. So on page, on page 201, uh, hyperobjects profoundly change how we think about any object. In a strange way, every object is a hyperobject. But we can only think this thought in light of the ecological emergency inside of which we have now woken up. Heidegger said, only a God can save us now. As we find ourselves waking up within a series of gigantic objects, we realize that he forgot to to add, we just don't know what sort of God. So so maybe maybe I'm wrong there. 
it, it certainly feels like uh, he, you know, um, has this in mind. Then I think so. <laughs> um, I, I've always felt, and maybe this is a uh, too long of a of a wormhole for this point in the conversation. I just wanted to call attention to the fact that we both um, had significant and formative encounters with Christianity and then moved uh, beyond that into some other space um, that's had lots of phases as long as we've known each other, I think, of, of relating to Christianity. Uh, but to me, the, the kind of reductive materialist atheistic refusal of religion has always felt like a dead end. Like, that's not the thing. Um, and it's hard for me to imagine any kind of um, future like what Morton or Heidegger is pointing at, or even just a future that I think is livable, uh, emerging from the kind of uh, caricature Richard Dawkins-esque view that, like, you know, you, the only things that are real are things that can be measured and any kind of relation to the sacred that involves personified entities that, you know, are not of this plane or not immediately available is fantasy uh, or, uh, or worse, delusion. I've just never, never really seen that as a viable way to live. When I when I heard that, I immediately thought of, and I know I've shared this with you before, but uh, the the way that um, Robert Haas begins his um, a book of poetry, I believe it's from 1971, called Praise, uh, excellent mm. book of poems. But there's a um, a little paragraph, you know, that he has as an intro, and um, it's it's not attributed, so far as I can see, but it, it says that. We asked the captain what course of action he proposed to take towards a beast so large, terrifying, and unpredictable. He hesitated to answer and then said judiciously, I think I shall praise it. Mm. And, and to, to me, I mean, there, there's a way to read Morton is to think, you know, here, here's something that will fundamentally change us if we, if we allow it to impress itself upon us. Mm -hmm. And rest assured, it is it is pressing itself upon us, big time. Um, and you know, I mean, it suppose it depends on how what you think praise is. But if you interpret praise as to acquiesce oneself, right, to allow to to not push it away, but to to bring it close to oneself and to to wrap yourself around it, you know, I mean, that's mm. that's attuning oneself to the last god, I suppose. It is. It is. And and if Morton says we don't know what sort of God and uh, bringing, bringing some poetry into this, I think of um, a poem by Rilke. We say release and radiance and roses and echo upon everything that's known. And yet behind the world, our names enclose is the nameless, our true archetype and home. The sun seems male, and earth is like a woman. The field is humble, and the forest proud. But over everything we say, inhuman, moves the forever undetermined God. We grow up, but the world remains a child. Star and flower in silence watch us grow. And sometimes... We appear to be the final exam they must succeed on, and they do. Over everything we say in human moves the forever undetermined God, being the, the operative line there, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I, the thing that actually jumped out to me was that the, uh, we grow up, but the world remains a child. Right. Uh, I, it, I mean, there's, it's all kind of like waxing around this, this, this kind of idea. Right. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, that's, that's gorgeous. Mm. That's one of my favorites, maybe of all time. Uh, I've heard you reference the Robert Haas praise before. And I think both of these poems uh, or, or poetic thoughts um, point to something which 
has been sort of kicking around my mind as a, a yoga instructor and a leader of meditation and, and chanting um, is what would it mean for meditation to be, you know, rather than the project of an individual sort of working on themselves like an achievement subject, what about meditation as tuning through the zone that opens between us and hyper objects? Um, and I've yet to actually explore this practice, but what would it mean for me to just meditate on like uh, the giant slab of styrofoam I just found in a box in my closet this morning as I was cleaning the house? Like, uh, is there a, a meditation practice that opens the zone of hyper objects rather than the zone of achievement subject. Yeah. That seems to me like a really great install, um, where yeah. install is like a series of practices. Um, you know, cause I can imagine, you know, I, I did once I did it in the Bay, I did, uh, this it was a nature and yoga retreat <clears throat> and we did a kind of a walking meditation. And then we, sat outside it was a lovely day and we sat up in the sun and he kind of talked through the i'll just generally call it love and radiance kind of feel the sun on your skin you know kind of a thing mm -hmm. i could imagine a variation on that which really kind of took this you know and morton does this in the text too right is like talking through you know the getting this a sunburn in january or whatever right mm -hmm. and and using that as as um, you know, a way in which global warming impinges on you, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I can imagine playing that out through a, a spoken, a led meditation, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, and you know, if that, it, it feels like there's a tradition that's somewhat like this in the sense, you know, there's like, uh, and I'm sure you, I think you know more about this, but the, there's like these Tibetan modes, which you know, involve uh, imagining the deconstruction of the body. Right, ripping chud. The body. Yeah, yeah. It's called chud, and uh, yeah, med meditation on self dissection and offering the organs and all the vital parts of the body to various demons, right, <laughs> uh, to pacify them. Um, you know, yeah, and and it, but everyone who does the practice reports that it is tremendously beneficial. Right. Uh, there's a wonderful book called Feeding Your Demons uh, by Tsultrim Alion, uh, where she sort of takes a, a somewhat Jungian approach. She's a Tibetan Buddhist herself, but she imports some psychoanalytic framework to how it is very useful to sit with the demonic, right, to to be in uh, a state of of curiosity, wonderment, supplication, awe, fear, friendship, uh, with frightening forces, not just with, you know, the pleasure of the sun on your skin, even though that's awesome to meditate on as well, I'm sure. You know, there was this, the, uh, story I heard about the Buddha where, um, when the Buddha was kind of traveling around, um, kind of mid mid period, there was um, <clears throat> a person that was kind of helping facilitate when he would meet with practitioners and all this. And that person was charged with, um, apparently there was a, a, a demon that would come and try to, to ruin his, his, his talks, his Dharma talks. Mm. And the practitioner identified the demon on kind of the edge of the tent and informed the Buddha that, you know, they were trying to ruin it. And uh, so the Buddha immediately stops talking and goes over and, and greets the demon and invites them to tea um, afterwards. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can interpret this, but apparently it happens over the course of months, right? Every time the demon shows up, the Buddha invites up to tea. Hmm. Um, you know, there's a, a way in which to, to have true true kind of peace of mind. Uh, that's probably not the right term, but um, true equanimity. Clarity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll say, you know, it seems like that's, that's the task, right? Mm. Um, 
is is to to find equanimity not with you know uh positivity but rather with with um you know the the other or or mm. um, or you know negativity right mm. I, I think that's what we're kind of circling around here i think so too and I, i'm not sure if it's i i want to say it's some kind of post uh hegelian french philosopher maybe um bataille or something like that has a a term uh, he calls it tarrying with the negative right like slow down and spend time with the negative um yeah i think we are i think we are circling around this and i think i will include at the end of this episode a uh brief guided practice of uh working with the negative i had also just because we've both been uh uh doing some tolkien i've got this uh this poem that he wrote uh, to C.S. Lewis, and I just wanted to throw it into the mix before we run out of time. Uh, it's long, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, I'll just read the first two stanzas. It says, uh, Mythopoeia, to one who said that myths were lies and therefore worthless, even though breathed through silver. And the, then the poem begins. You look at trees and label them just so, for trees are trees and growing is to grow. You walk the earth and tread with solemn pace, one of the many minor globes of space. A star is a star, some matter in a ball, compelled to courses mathematical, amid the regimented cold inane where destined atoms are each moment slain. At the bidding of a will to which we bend and must, but only dimly apprehend, great processes march on as time unrolls from dark beginnings to uncertain goals. And as on page o'erwritten without clue, with script and limning packed of various hue, an endless multitude of forms appear, some grim, some frail, some beautiful, some queer, each alien, except as kin from one remote origin, gnat, man, stone, and sun. God made the petrius rocks, the arboreal trees, tellurian earth, and stellar stars, and these homuncular men, who walk upon the ground with nerves that tingle, touched by light and sound. The movements of the sea, the wind and boughs, green grass, the large slow oddity of cows, thunder and lightning, birds that wheel and cry, slime crawling up from mud to live and die. These each are duly registered and print the brain's contortions with a separate dent. Oh, that was great. <laughs> and it, in the intro to that, apparently he and C.S. Lewis were taking a walk and C.S. Lewis was basically like, myths are bullshit. And Tolkien was so mad, he like didn't talk to him for two weeks and wrote that and mailed it to him. Something like that. Uh, <laughs> so awesome. Yeah. Man. I mean, it, it would, I feel like if it was you or I, we'd just be like, well... Uh, you're you're only saying that because you're so invested in one. You can't see that you're invested in it anymore. Right. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. my god. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a powerful piece. I mean, the uh, homuncular men who walk upon the ground with nerves that tingle, touched by light and sound. It feels like Morton could have written that, like the way that it lists all these objects that you encounter. You know, it's got that. It feels like a pre o o o thing, you know, that just making the glory of the objects appear in and of themselves, uh, ready to shatter you, ready to to push up against the nervous system, uh, ready to overcome achievement subject free will and uh, leave us vulnerable to whatever might appear. 
And so in relating to the hyper object of global warming, if we have no space of vulnerability, giving free will over to see what might appear, then things are just going to appear and impinge upon us, just like what's happening right now. What follows is a guided practice, taking the shape of meditation, but as a way of tuning ourselves to hyperobjects. Perhaps this isn't exactly what Timothy Morton has in mind as he speaks of attunement throughout his text, but we'll take this opportunity to feel into what it means to be encased within and surrounded by objects that are larger than we can fully conceptualize, grasp, make definite histories of, or relate to in the way that we tend to relate to things in the average everyday world of late capitalism. The following practice can be done either sitting or lying down. If you prefer to sit, I would recommend observing the rules that are often used for the practice of meditation. In other words, don't sit back against any support. Try to come up tall on the two sitting bones, the ischial tuberosities, and don't let your back sag into a couch or a chair back uh, or any other surface. If you're lying down, make sure your head and legs are comfortable. And first become aware of any styrofoam in your house. If you don't think you have any styrofoam within the walls of your house, you don't have to expand the eye of the imagination very far to find some, whether it's in the nearest dumpster, underneath your own bed or in your own closet or storage unit, in the apartment or house down the hall or the street, or the restaurant just a little further away. And allow your mind to be drawn in the direction of styrofoam. Styrofoam exists, and it exists in a way that is much larger than any of us. Any one piece of styrofoam will outlast you or me or our children or our children's children and even beyond. Not cognitively recognizing that only, I want you to reach your felt sense into the duration of styrofoam existing in an indefinite way, in a, in a way much larger than our 80-some year life expectancy. Whatever changes our planet goes through between now and then, the styrofoam will probably still exist for 500 years from now. You'll be long gone, but that inert object still exists. It still rests. It still coheres with itself and with other similar products. You might even visualize the piece of styrofoam as broken or as encased in dirt or grass or even wrapped in the roots of a tree or a vine. Just allow yourself to be in the presence of such an elastic, viscous object that can exist for that long. 
and then become aware of the planet beneath you. Notice your points of contact with your seat, or if you're lying down the surface beneath you, and expand your awareness through the points of contact down into the earth itself. Unlike some practices of earth breathing or earth descent, visualizations of the earth, we actually want to open the portal of the senses. Definitely touch, but some of the other senses as well, to the fact that earth, the planet, reaches into you. And perhaps for the purpose of meditation today, it is useful to imagine that as happening from below. But of course, the planet surrounds. You're not just on the planet or above the Earth, but you are in it. Nevertheless, you can start this practice by reaching down through points of contact as if to touch the earth itself with your awareness. But your awareness in the context of planetary existence is relatively small or seemingly of a different order. Allow the earth to reach back. It's not even meaningful to speak here of a handshake between your mental intelligence and the planetary existence. So instead, you reach, but the Earth is like a tidal wave in the opposite direction. There would be no you without this planetary foundation. No styrofoam, no books, no relationships, No history, no desire, no nexus of humans, no civilization or city. Without tectonic plates, magma, the phenomenon we call weather, the vast multiplicity of species interrelating, in the planetary zone and the nearly unfathomable reaches of planetary time. The duration of geological time surrounds you and dwarfs you. A tidal wave of time You're just a bubble on the surface. Reach down into gravity and let Earth's nearly infinite duration, infinite in scale relative to you, reach into your experience. Be surrounded and cloaked. Be held, be supported, and be dwarfed. Oceans of time deserts of time, cataclysms, eruptions, vast, seemingly endless eras where very little seems to happen, gaps, mysteries, Historical unknowns, inexplicable occurrences. Be the planetary memory.
Thank you for tuning in to Resonant Zones.